Well, it is good what the Lord has done for us. So some mornings remind you more than others that it is good that we have a Savior who loves us, who's given his life for us, and who never will leave us. So I want to extend a welcome to you. If you're a visitor here, there should be a card right in front of you. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here at Faith Family Fellowship, and would uh, be overjoyed if you would take that card and share a little information about yourself with us. Uh, if there's anything we can do for you, pray for you, uh, to put that on there and drop that in the offering baskets at the back of the room. Uh, on your way out this morning, we would greatly appreciate that opportunity. So we've got a as always, a wonderful time together uh, in the Lord's house and seeking Him. And so we've got several things uh, special today to pray for and uh, several uh, different activities of worship that uh, kind of are all culminating on the same day. And so uh, the first of them is a, a recognition, a recognition of uh, with other churches all around the country uh, for setting this Sunday apart to be reminded of the world and reminded specifically of the Lord's charge to us to care for orphans uh, in, in the world. And so uh, looking this morning, the estimate, of course, it's an estimate. It's a, it's a toss-up if it's consistent, but about 150 million uh, orphans in, in the world uh, in, without, in orphanages or in foster care uh, in about I think three or four hundred thousand in the U.S. is what what I saw this morning, and so there is definitely a need. There is an incredible need for children in the world to care for them. It's something the church always has done. That the Roman world, the beginning of the church, they were befuddled at Christians going and picking up orphan children and caring for them. They didn't have an answer for it. It was one of those early things that inspired. Uh, distaste, disdain for the church in, in the Roman world was the care of Christian people for orphans. And so, not to, not to guilt trip you, that's not what I'm trying to do, just information swirling around in my head I want to share with you, but also encourage you at this time that we would pray, that we would pray that the church would respond to the needs of others, that we would respond to the needs in the world and uh, that we would be praying for uh, those who have no hope outside of someone coming to help them. Which should hit home with us, because that's what God did for us. Spiritually, that's what he did. He came to us as we had nothing. We were incapable of producing forgiveness, yet he, by his blood, came to take our debt upon him. All right, so Orphan Stand Sunday, that's this Sunday. We'll pray here in a moment. Uh, but also, as Christmas is coming up, uh, we, as we do about each year, uh, but uh, is, is gather together gifts, put, put them in little red boxes, and send them off uh, across the globe uh, to go to different communities in the world. Uh, so today is the morning to gather those boxes and to pray for them. So if you have one, if you want to bring it down, you're fine. If you just want to hang on to it or it's in your car, that's fine. Uh, we'll, we'll pray for it now and just pray for the, uh, the shoeboxes that are going across the globe uh, to, to open doors. The point is not just giving stuff. It's not just giving stuff to people who can't go down. They, 
it's, it's, not, it's not about that. It's, it's an open door. It is an opportunity for the church in other contexts and other places in the world to be able to share the gospel, to have resources, to be able to enter into relationship with others and to meet needs in order to tell them of their greatest need, Christ. All right? So let's pray. And let's pray for the shoeboxes, pray for the opportunities there, and pray for the church, for our gathering here, but also globally, that the church would meet uh, needs in the lives of orphans. Okay, so would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that in the midst of weakness, in the midst of emptiness, of brokenness, that you are strong. And that you, Lord, are sufficient. And so, Father, would you help us this morning? May we rely fully upon you. God, may we come to a place of humility, of honest introspection, and of reliance upon you. That, Lord, we, we would not look upon ourselves and upon our future selves and say, what must I do to merit your, your favor? But instead, may we look upon you this morning and see you, see you in the sufficiency of the grace in Christ that he died in our place, that we would be forgiven. And that that forgiveness would be eternal, never ending, not limited. And so, Father, would you help us this morning to see you, to not just consider needs before us and think, what can we do to fix it? How, how are we enough to accomplish it? But Lord, may we see the needs and may it lead us to cry out to you for help. You to supply, you to provide, and you to lead us. And so, Father, these shoeboxes that have been prepared and that will be collected and, and distributed this week, that, Lord, would you go with each one of them? Lord, would you open doors for the gospel in communities across this world because of these boxes? God, we trust that you'll use them and, that, Lord, you will... In, in sending them that the church that you have placed all around this world would respond to this and steward these well to, to share who you are with children, to share who you are with their families, and that, God, you would be glorified through them. And so we see in your word that you, you instruct us that true and undefiled religion in your sight is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. And that, Lord, as an outworking of what you have done in, in the life of your church, that we should care for others. We should care for those in greatest need who can't care for themselves. And so, Father, would you, Lord, do that? Would you, Lord, provide for the multitude of children in this world who have no one to care for them? God, would you use and lead us to that end? Would you use your people, God, to, to meet those needs as an outworking of your goodness and your grace, as an outworking of what you have done within us, not as a response to, to guilt, but, Lord, as a response to your goodness and your grace. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would be with all the, all the organizations that are working in a variety of contexts in this world, that, God, you would provide for them, that you would purify those things, and that, Lord, the efforts would be, Lord, glorifying to you uh, to meet the needs of orphans, to, 
meet the needs of communities across this, this world, that God, you, Lord, would be there and you, Lord, would work with those people. God, we thank you and ask, Lord, you to continue this morning to speak to us and meet with us, that, Lord, you, Lord, would be glorified uh, in these, these next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church family, good morning. Let me invite you to take God's word with me, if you would, and join me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. One of the exhortations of Scripture to the church is that we would give careful attention to the public reading of Scripture, to God's word. And so this morning we want to do that together from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. If you are able this morning, would you stand with me? For the reading of God's word, Colossians chapter 2, as we hear from the Lord together from his word, Colossians 2, verses 1 to 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him... You have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead... In your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities... He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Father, as we hear your word this morning, God, we acknowledge before you that we are here to hear from you. Father, your word rules and reigns over all that we do in this place. And Father, particularly this morning, this particular text is pointing us to all that we are in Christ not in ourselves. Father, this passage is directing us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, 
has been resurrected and now seated at your right hand, O God. All that we are is because we are in Christ. So as we continue to sing, as we continue to worship, as we hear from your word, God, as we receive the Lord's Supper together, O God, all praise and honor and glory to your great name. Through Christ our Lord we pray it. Amen. our hope in life and death Christ alone Christ alone what is our only confidence that our souls to him belong who holds our days within his hand what comes apart from his What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand.
Behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery, be the Lord, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for that gift. Lord, as you've sent your son to be the Savior, God, to pay our debt. Father, thank you. 
Lord, I pray that as we come to a time of memorizing scripture, and Lord, as we eventually come to a time of reading your word and, and Lord, hearing your word proclaimed, that you would give us ears to hear and God, more importantly, hearts to understand. Father, that you would speak through David, speak through Pastor David as he comes to bring your word, that we would be able to receive and hear you proclaim. Father, that through this man, you will be glorified through what he has to say, that you would speak through him. So, Lord, thank you. Lord, help us to love you and glorify you in all that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So go ahead and take a seat. Before we get moving, we have, uh, we've been memorizing scripture together and memorizing each Sunday a verse. And so uh, before we open the word together, uh, there's, there's an aspect of Scripture that is unique, unique from anything else in any other book, in that the Scriptures purify. The Scriptures uh, that God has inspired and preserved and given to us, that not only is it instructive, not only does it give us instructions for life, but it reveals who God is and... He works within our lives and souls through what He has given us in the Word. And so as we, we gather together to hear from Him in His Word, there's nothing better than considering what He has said to prepare our hearts to hear from Him. And so as we memorize Scripture, this is not just a mental exercise. It's not just a, let's see who can get the most in and, and just mentally considering it. But it's also spiritual worshipful to write the Lord's word upon our souls that he would direct us and that he would change us and prepare us to be more like him to be more useful and good stewards of what he's given us and to see more of him and so just want to encourage you that to to consider God's word here and as we recite this one verse really really small this month uh, from Acts 3.19, to consider the Lord's word here. And let's spend some time in prayer and in consideration of this. So let's recite it. Let's recite uh, this out loud, or so if you would, read with me. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 3.19. And so this verse comes right in the middle of a sermon, one of the first sermons of the, of the newest, the earliest church, so the Jews had just crucified Christ, and Peter speaks up as they have seen a miracle happen. And he says, you killed the Lord of life. That he came in fulfillment of the scripture that you know. And instead of rescuing and, and putting him in his proper place, you traded a murderer for him and sent him to the cross. And so Peter then says, repent. What do you do with this? Repent. Turn back to the Lord. Turn to him that he would forgive you. And then the next verse, we're not memorizing it, but it's still a beautiful one. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven has received and who will return. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you that we see this, this snapshot here 
in history of your word of restoration for these people who had the Lord of life before them and they asked that he would be crucified. And yet, because of your abundant mercy and grace, you, you offered repentance and forgiveness through Peter's word here. May we recognize, God, your abundant mercy that has not been exhausted. 2,000 years later, it has not been exhausted, but you offer the same to us. You offer that if we would repent and turn back to you, that we would be forgiven. That we would be forgiven and restored by your grace. And so, Father, would you help us as we as we've gathered here, that we would hear from you and hear from you in your word, and that, God, you would draw us to repentance. You would draw us to recognition of need for your grace, and that, Lord, we would, we would turn our hearts and our lives to you that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew, thanks, brother. Church family, would you take God's word and join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, one verse for us before we come to the Lord's table together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 is where we'll be. And maybe as you're turning there, just a brief roadmap, um, kind of where we're heading maybe over the next couple of weeks. Um, next Sunday will be the Sunday kind of right before Thanksgiving. And so we will direct our, our hearts toward thankfulness together by the preaching of the word next Sunday. And then the final Sunday of this month is the first Sunday of Advent, where we turn our hearts uh, to remember, uh, to look forward to the coming, uh, the celebration of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the last Sunday of this month, we'll begin a new sermon series together, uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Matthew's gospel. So if it's been a while since you've read in Matthew's gospel, it may be a great time for you to uh, take a look there, uh, begin reading. Uh, it certainly begins with uh, Matthew's account of the, the birth of Christ, and so a great way for us to uh, not only move into a new sermon series, but also to direct our hearts uh, toward the coming of Christ that we're celebrating at Christmas. But this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 26, as we are preparing our hearts to come to receive the Lord's Supper together this morning, as we're thinking about the verse before us in verse 26 of chapter 11, I, I think I want us to ask and then answer at least one question together this morning. Why, why do we do this? Why every month do we come together in this room and the effort goes into preparing, making sure that everything is as it needs to be so that we can observe the Lord's Supper together. Why do we do this? Maybe a little more specifically, we can ask, uh, why do we eat and then why do we drink in remembrance of who Jesus is and what he has done? Why do we regularly give ourselves to this glorious ordinance of the church. In thinking about that question and, and seeking to answer, why do we do this? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26 answers that question for us. 
And in answering the question for us, it compels us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It compels our thankfulness to grow for who Christ is and what he has done so that when we put our hand upon the elements and ingest them into our bodies, our hearts are overwhelmed with gratitude for God's abundant grace on us in Christ so as we're thinking about the question, why do we do, do this? And as we're looking down to verse 26, here's the answer as to why we regularly observe the Lord's Supper. And by the way, this is kind of the one point of the sermon. So one point, one verse, all right, so don't miss it. One point here, and it's this, that the observance of the Lord's Supper is a corporate proclamation of the Lord's death. Why do we do this? Because, verse 26, the Lord's Supper, the observance of the Lord's Supper is a corporate, meaning church-wide, one another together, proclamation of the Lord's death. This is not merely a ritual or routine. It is much more than just crackers and juice. It is God's people, saved by God's covenant grace and mercy, coming together, sitting in the pews with one another, putting your hands on the plates as you pass them around the room together, ingesting those elements as as one unified body together, and in so doing, making a proclamation to your own hearts, to one another, and to the watching world who God is and what he has done for us in our only sufficient Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be familiar with why Paul is writing, particularly in chapter 11, regarding the Lord's Supper, and it is because there have been some pretty grotesque abuses of the Lord's Lord's Supper in the church at Corinth. And so Paul is writing to instruct them on what the Lord's Supper is, how they should receive it, the things that they need to stop doing because they're actually sinning when they come together to observe the Lord's Supper. And as you're looking at this text, your eyes are falling on verses 23 and 24, those familiar words. And Paul is there citing the words of Jesus when he says, in the night in which he was betrayed. And he's kind of quoting the language of Christ there. And then in verse 26, he points his attention back to the Corinthians with words of instruction and caution to remind them that, again, the observance of the Lord's Supper is a corporate proclamation of the Lord's death. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word for at the beginning of verse 26. You might could also insert the word because there. That word for in verse 26 is pointing you backward to what Paul has previously said in verses 23 down to 25 about the, the, the bread and the body and the, the wine and the blood. Specifically, that word for in verse 26 is is answering the question for us. Why do we eat and why do we drink in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do that? For. Because. 
look down, the argument just continues. We won't read all this, but just let your eyes fall on verse 27. Why do we not eat or drink in an unworthy manner? Because eating and drinking is gospel proclamation. That's why you don't do it in an unworthy manner. Just let your eyes fall down to verse 28. Why do we examine ourselves before eating and drinking? Because eating and drinking is gospel proclamation, Paul is saying in verse 26, that we should never approach flippantly or take lightly. Why this morning, beloved, do we come together to eat and to drink? Verse 26, to proclaim the Lord's death. For, verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, I want you to notice in verse 26, it happens twice, Paul uses the word you there. And as you see that, Paul is not merely speaking to you, the individual, that you is plural. It's like y'all, right? All y'all. Church, all of you, saved by God's grace, brought into covenant relationship with Him in Christ, into the local church, For as often as you eat this bread, and in the same plural you at the end, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is not merely about me this morning. And it's not merely about you. Now look, to be sure, there is an individual aspect to this, right? Because it is incumbent upon every single person in the room to ensure that they have come to repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not saved this morning because of the salvation of the person on the pew with you. You must individually come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, when we think about observing the Lord's Supper together, there is a corporate, one another, together element of this, where we eat the bread. That bread in verse 26, pointing back to the bread of verses 23 and 24. You you know what this is. It's that Passover bread that Jesus took on the night in which he was betrayed. You recall that moment where Jesus takes that bread and he breaks it and begins passing that around the room to his disciples. What is he doing in that moment? We just recall that he's drawing a direct correlation to his body which just a few hours later he would lay down as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. So just by way of reminder for us this morning, church, when you take the bread into your hands in just a little bit, we are remembering in that moment the body of Jesus crucified as the substitutionary sacrificial lamb of God. But he also says in verse 26, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, The cup in verse 26, pointing you back to the cup in verse 25. The Passover cup, at least one of the Passover cups that Jesus would have taken on that night with his disciples. They would have drunk that together, passed that around the room, putting their lips to the cup, ingesting the Passover wine. And in that moment, you remember what Jesus does. He draws a direct correlation away from the blood of bulls and goats, which could never atone for sin, but Jesus draws a direct line to His own shed blood. His blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so in a moment, as we put our hands to the cup together, 
as we drink together, we remember the blood of Jesus shed for us. And we remember that without the shedding of that blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then in verse 26, you come to the crux of the matter. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, plural, you, all of you, the church corporate, you preach. You herald something. You proclaim the Lord's death. You didn't know that when you walked in the door this morning that you would be preaching, did you? But there is a very real sense that as we observe the Lord's Supper together, as the elements are passed and taken into our bodies, we're preaching, we're proclaiming, we're reminding some things in our own hearts, we're proclaiming some things to one another, and then to the watching world, we are preaching a sermon about the Lord's death. That's what we're proclaiming. And you recall that word proclaim. We saw that together last week in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28. It means to openly, clearly, plainly, unashamedly speak and declare. So what are we saying then? What are we saying about the Lord's death? That seems to be the subject of the sermon proclamation of the death of Christ. What are we saying in that moment? Are we just simply saying That a historical man named Jesus died on a Roman cross on the outskirts of Jerusalem somewhere around 30 AD. Are we just merely thinking about the facts or are we considering so much more? In the proclamation of the Lord's death, are we thinking about remembering and then proclaiming together what Jesus' death on that Roman cross on the outskirt of Jerusalem around 30 AD, what it actually accomplishes for us? And beloved, I think that's it. We're moving just beyond the mere facts of let me just have a mental exercise where I remember that Jesus died. And then let's think beyond that, deeper than that, more biblically than that, more fully than that, to consider all that his death on the cross means for us. So here's what I want to do. I want you to buckle in just for a minute. This is going to happen quickly, all right? But I want to mention for us 10 things that we are proclaiming about the Lord's death. Don't panic. Please don't panic. I will not keep you here all day but 10 things that I want us just to consider. And here's what I hope happens, that as you hear these things, as you're remembering these things with me, that joy just exponentially is growing in your heart so that in a moment when we observe the Lord's Supper together, you are so thankful unto God for what He has done for us in Christ. So buckle in, 10 things. Number one, what are we proclaiming about the Lord's death? We are proclaiming that it is the Lord's death. We are proclaiming that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross. Very God and very man, fully God and fully man. We are proclaiming that it is the sovereign creator and the Lord of the universe who died on that cross. We are proclaiming that it is the sovereign Lord and author of salvation who has laid down his life on that cross. We are proclaiming that by the merits of his death on that cross, Jesus is the revelation 
Revelation 19.16, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the perfect divine God-man who goes to the cross and dies on behalf of His chosen people. Secondly, we proclaim that it is the Lord's death. We proclaim that it is the Lord's death. We actually believe, we actually must proclaim that Jesus actually died on the cross. Because we are proclaiming that the wages of sin is always what, church? It's always death. And that if our sins are going to be made right before a holy God, then the God-appointed sacrifice must what? He must die. Not merely bleed a little, not merely suffer a bit, he must actually die. Just as the Exodus 12 Passover lamb had to die. And its blood be covered, uh, be covering the doorpost in the homes of God's people. So Jesus, our Passover lamb, had to die and shed his blood for our sinful lives to be covered. Thirdly, what are we proclaiming this morning? We're proclaiming that it is through faith in Jesus' death that we are justified before God. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that it is through faith in Jesus' death on the cross that we are justified before God. Romans chapter 5, 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, Jesus' death on the cross, there resulted justification of life to all men. Volumes and volumes and volumes have been written and preached about the doctrine of justification by faith. Luther said it was the doctrine upon which the church rises or falls. But simply this morning, church, we're proclaiming that it is through faith in what Jesus has done on the cross that we are made legally right before God. Legally innocent. We go from being guilty lawbreakers to perfect law keepers through the righteousness of Christ. That's what we're proclaiming. Fourthly, we're proclaiming that we are redeemed by Jesus' death on the cross. We are redeemed by the Lord's death. Because of our sin, we are in bondage to slavery. We are not free. We cannot escape that on our own. If we would be free from the chains of bondage, we must be set free by someone acting outside of us on our behalf. And as we put our hand to the bread and the cup this morning, that's what we're proclaiming. That it is Jesus who has set us free and bought us back from the slavery of sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Hebrews 9, 12, through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. If you are in Christ this morning, if you're a believer this morning, it did not happen because you figured it out, you got the right combination, and you freed yourself from your own sin. It happened because you were set free by precious blood. That's what we're proclaiming this morning. Fifthly, we proclaim that through the Lord's death, not only are we set free from sin, but we are cleansed of sin. 
we are cleansed of sin. To such a degree, dear saints, that when God looks at you this morning covered in the righteousness of Christ, He does not see your sin. That is a mind-blowing reality. And this, by the way, is what's going to allow you to come and receive this this morning, even though you feel so unworthy. Some of you walked in the room this morning and you saw this before you, and maybe there was a thought somewhere in the back of your mind, there's no way I can do this this morning. Because I know what the week prior was like. Beloved, in Christ, you are cleansed of your sin. And so that when God looks at you, you are already, you've been justified, right? You are positionally right before God. And one of the things that that also means is that you are cleansed of your sin. Hebrews 9.14 says that through Christ's blood, we are cleansed in our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 says that we were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixth thing that we're proclaiming together this morning, we proclaim that we are forgiven by the Lord's death. We're forgiven by the Lord's death. Ephesians 1 verse 7, through his blood comes the forgiveness of our trespasses. Hebrews 9 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness of sins. And beloved, just so we remember this rightly, remember what forgiveness is. And remember maybe this, that God is not like your granddaddy. All right? Here's what I mean. I had the best granddaddy growing up. At least when I was a kid, I, I, really, I really believed that. Because whenever I did something wrong, he would do what a lot of granddaddies do, which is, we just won't tell your mom and dad about that, right? We'll just sweep that under the rug. Here's a piece of peppermint. I love you. And we move on. Beloved, that's not how God deals with our sin. God's not your granddaddy, right? God is holy. His holiness demands Justice upon every single solitary act of sin. And God does something better, by the way, than sweeping it under the rug. Because when Jesus goes to the cross and he hangs there, and he dies there, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Something we'll talk about in a minute, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Forgiveness is not God sweeping your sin under the rug. Oh, boys are boys, right? We'll let bygones be bygones. Don't worry about it. I won't bring it up again. No, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is God taking your sin, dear saint, and placing it on Jesus, and Jesus paying the penalty for every single act of your sin. Isn't that better than it getting swept under the rug? Because if it's been swept under the rug, then it really hasn't been dealt with and it's really not forgiven. But if it is nailed, Colossians 2, to the cross of Christ that we read earlier, well, now we've got something, right? Now we've got forgiveness. Seventh thing that we're proclaiming, we proclaim that we are adopted through the Lord's death. We are adopted into God's family. Matthew alluded to this earlier as we're praying uh, for Stand Sunday 
that one of the big reasons why we always give care to the plight of orphans is because before you were in Christ, you were the spiritual orphan. No home, no family, no provision, no protection, no life, nothing until Christ comes and dies and rescues you and adopts you into the family of God. Galatians 3 verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's what we're proclaiming. Number eight, we're proclaiming that we are made righteous. We've already alluded to this, but we are made righteous by the Lord's death. There is a great exchange that happens at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of your sin gets nailed to the cross upon Christ. And in a mystery of mysteries, dear saints, you get all of Christ's perfect law-keeping righteousness. You didn't earn it. You didn't figure it out. It is an astonishing act of grace that does not logically make any sense. But, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. What's the exchange? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Number nine, we proclaim that through Jesus' death, we are under the new covenant of grace. We are God's covenant people, beloved. God's seal is upon you. God will not lose you. God will not quit on you. You will make it to heaven when you die because you are under God's covenant of grace. Turn back to Hebrews 9 with me. Hebrews chapter 9. Let these three verses soak into your soul. Hebrews 9 verses 15 to 17. Speaking of Jesus, how He is better than the old sacrifices. The new covenant is better and more eternal than the old. Hebrews 9, verse 15, For this reason He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Christ died to make you the covenant people of God. What did Jesus say about the cup? This is my blood. New covenant of my blood. And then tenthly, we're proclaiming this morning that Jesus' death is the once and for all time death for sins. If you're still in Hebrews, look to chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified.
1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all the just, for the unjust, in order that He might bring us to God. Jesus' death is the once and for all time only substitute sacrifice and death for our sins. Do you believe that this morning? You know that this morning. Do you know that to such a degree that you have turned away from your sin? That you're not relying on your mom or dad or anything else other than the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? Have you turned from your sins? Have you come to Jesus as the once and for all time sacrificial substitute for your sins? You must. You must must do that today. You must not wait. Do not be so arrogant and foolish as to think you can delay until tomorrow as if you hold tomorrow in your hands. For you most assuredly do not. And we do this at the end of verse 26 until He comes. Right, saints? Here we have the glorious promise of Christ's return. We eat and drink in hope of the second coming. We eat and drink in expectancy of a better day when we will sit down with Jesus together at the great wedding feast and marriage supper of the Lamb. There's often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim something, church. You proclaim the Lord's death. We do that until He comes. When this temporary will give way to the eternal, and when our faith will give way to sight. But until that day, we continually return to this moment to put our hands on the plate together, to ingest these elements together, and to proclaim together the Lord's death until He comes. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we consider not just the question and answer of why do we do this, but as as we more importantly, consider what, we're pro- we're, we're, what we are about to proclaim together this morning. God, overwhelm our hearts. Not just with the reality that Jesus died, although that is glorious in itself. But Father, overwhelm our hearts with what Jesus has actually accomplished for the sins of his people. God, as we come to this really beautiful moment where we remember and proclaim, oh God, that it would be in remembrance, that it would be in thankfulness, that it would be in worship and praise unto your great name. God, this is a humbling moment because everything about this moment is reminding us that we couldn't save ourselves. Everything about this moment is reminding us that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary, as someone has once said. So, God, humble us under the beautiful gospel. Humble us 
beneath the work of Jesus' cross. God, help us to continue to engage in these moments to worship. Together we pray. Christ our Lord. Amen. As our elders, deacons, as they begin to make their way forward to begin passing the elements out to you as they begin to come, let me just speak a a word of reminder, if I may, maybe even a word of caution to us.